Doughty's Biology, recorded Tuesday the 17th of May 2022, the Department of Defence. Isn't this the coolest way to study? You're sitting on the bus or you're in the canteen queue. You've got your headphones on. Look around. Everyone who sees you thinks you're listening to some cool music. Well, let's let them think that, shall we? Just nod your head and tap your foot. I won't tell them what you're doing if you don't. It'll be our little secret. And in the meanwhile, let's study biology. Fortunately, we have some really cool defences that do protect our body against attack by bacteria and viruses. I mean, it is true, we are being attacked. There are bacteria and viruses falling into our eyes out of the air. They are in the food that we eat, in the water that we drink, in the air that we breathe. That is all true. Um, and, and really, when you think about it, I mean, this is this is the part of the Unit 3 course that I find the most interesting, and, and if you you know if you if you appreciate just how many, did you know there are more bacteria in your mouth right now than there are people on the earth? You know, we, we literally are covered in microorganisms that that would take advantage of our resources. The the bacteria would love to get into your body where it's warm and moist and nutritious, the three things that bacteria you know, thrive on the most. And the viruses, of course, they want to get in there, take over the machinery of your cell and force your cells to make new viruses. That's the way that viruses reproduce. All of that is true. What's really, I think, amazing is that we don't get sick more often than we do. You know, I, I think we often, when we do get sick, we tend to feel sorry for ourselves and think, why, why did I, this happen to me? Why am I sick? The real question, though, I think, is why didn't I get sick all those other times? And I think that just highlights just how extraordinary our immune system is. It's, it's, it's amazingly complex but amazingly wonderful as well. And, and that's what we're going to spend our whole episode on today is looking at how our body defends itself against pathogens. I hope that you find this stuff as fascinating as I do. Okay. 
Okay, now the immune system. Let's start looking at the immune system. The immune system, um, the idea of it, I guess, is to to protect you from infection by pathogens um, with these layered defenses of increasing specificity. Um, The first line of defense is the most basic, um, and basically that's all of the... um, all of the physical and other barriers that prevent pathogens from getting into your body in the first place. We call those the first line of defense. We'll come back and look at that in a little bit more detail in a minute. Then we have a second line of defense, which includes all the innate or the non-specific immune responses. These are one-size-fits-all responses. No matter what pathogen gets into your body, um, these second line of defense responses um, will do the same thing, um, irrespective of whether it's a virus or a bacteria or a, you know, a fungus or a protozoan, um, the response will be the same. And then, finally, there's the third line of defense or the specific immune response, or some people call it the adaptive immune response, which is a very, very tailor-made, very, very specific response to each individual pathogen. Okay, and that's, as I said before, the, the exciting part. Now, before we start looking at these three lines of defense, let's talk just a little bit about white blood cells or leukocytes, as we should probably call them, because um, we're, we're, you know, we're biologists, right? <laughs> so the word leuco is Greek for white, and the word cyte, or cyto, is Greek for for cell. So a leukocyte literally is a white cell. Now, leukocytes um, all come from these cells in the bone marrow, which are called pluripotent stem cells. Um, they're stem cells, that, and, and what a stem cell is, is it's a cell that hasn't finished differentiating. It can still differentiate further to become some other kind of cell. Um, it's not like an embryonic stem cell, an embryonic stem cell can differentiate to become any kind of cell in the body. Well, a pluripotent stem cell can't differentiate to become anything. It couldn't, for example, become a skin cell or a brain cell, but it can become any kind of leukocyte, any kind of white blood cell. Now, those pluripotent stem cells divide to become either myeloid stem cells or lymphoid stem cells, okay? So the pluripotent stem cells can become any kind of leukocyte. They then differentiate to become either myeloid stem cells or lymphoid stem cells. And and basically what that involves, that differentiation, like any kind of differentiation, what that involves is certain genes being blocked or turned off, okay? So that they're no longer transcribed and translated to make some particular kind of protein. And once that gene is turned off, for all intents and purposes, it's not true to say, but always, but but for all intents and purposes, that's a permanent thing. We, we have apparently found ways to unblock them and, and turn those genes back on again. But typically, once a cell differentiates to become, say, a myeloid stem cell or a lymphoid stem cell, it's going to stay that. It can't go back um, and take the other pathway. Now, the myeloid stem cells are then going to differ because they're still stem cells. They can still differentiate to become other kinds of cells. So the myeloid stem cells can differentiate to become mast cells, like the mast of a ship, or basophils, or eosinophils, or neutrophils, or macrophages, or dendritic cells. And all of those are involved in the non-specific immune response, that one size fits all the second line of defense. Although some of them play a little role, particularly macrophages and dendritic cells, for reasons that they're a bit special. Um, for reasons that we'll talk about later on when we're talking about the third line of defense, macrophages and dendritic cells 
play a very critical role in the third line of defense, but they're not actually directly involved in that specific immune response. That, that will become clearer as we go along. So, okay, the myeloid stem cells differentiate to become mast cells, basophils, eosinophils, neutrophils, and macrophages and dendritic cells. Okay, um, we'll talk more about most of those um, shortly. The lymphoid stem cells, okay, so we've got our pluripotent stem cells, remember, differentiates to become either myeloid stem cells or lymphoid stem cells. The lymphoid stem cells give rise to one of really three groups of cells, either large granular lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, or B lymphocytes. Okay, so the lymphoid, while the myeloid stem cells differentiate to become mast cells, eosinophils, basophils, macrophages, dendritic cells, the lymphoid stem cells differentiate to become T lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, or large granular lymphocytes. Now, the only kind of large granular lymphocyte that I want you to, to know about is the natural killer cells, and we'll talk about those briefly. As far as um, the T cells are concerned, I think you need to know that those T lymphocytes will differentiate further to become cytotoxic T cells, helper T cells, suppressor T cells, and T memory cells. The B lymphocytes will differentiate further to become plasma cells or memory cells. Okay, And as I said, with all of those others, we're going to come back and we'll talk more about these um, shortly. But I just wanted to give that rundown of different kinds of leukocytes. Shall I go through them once more just very, very quickly? without any detail, let's do that. Okay, so we have these in our, our bone marrow, we have these stem cells called pluripotent stem cells. They can differentiate to become any kind of white blood cell. Um, they will differentiate to become either a myeloid stem cell or a lymphoid stem cell. The myeloid stem cells will then differentiate to become macrophages, dendritic cells, mast cells, eosinophils, basophils, um, many of which are actually phagocytes. Um, that's how they behave. Um, the lymphoid stem cells will differentiate to become either large granular lymphocytes, such as natural killer cells, B lymphocytes, or T lymphocytes. Okay, you got all that? Whew. It's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of big words already, isn't there? We've only just begun. There's so much more to go. Okay, so let's have a look at, firstly, the non-specific defenses. Um, that is, these defenses are not tailor-made for any specific pathogen. Um, they're just one-size-fits-all responses to pathogens. And the first line, so both the first and second lines of defense fit into this category. The first line of defense, are, as I said before, any barriers to pathogens, anything that stops pathogens from getting into your body in the first place, anything that prevents invasion of your body by pathogens, we put into this category of the first line of defense. The first and most important one to know about those, the first example of the first line of defense is an intact skin. Okay, so skin covers your body and the outer layer of your skin is dead. It prevents viruses or bacteria or fungi from getting into your body um, and invading cells. Now, notice that I said an intact skin and I did that for a very good reason. Because on the 2007 exam, you were asked for an example of the first line of defense. And lots of students wrote skin and they were marked wrong. 
they were marked wrong. And at the exam at the, at the um, examiner's presentation at the biology teachers conference in two thousand early two thousand and eight, um, this question was raised and. The, the examiners said that what they required was an intact skin. Not just a skin, but an intact skin. Now, to me, that's kooky talk because when you think about it, if, if you ask me, how did I get to car, get to, to, you ask me, how did I get to school this morning? I'm going to tell you that I got to school in a car. I didn't say I got to school in a functioning car. <laughs> it just seems, it just seems to me um, to, to be ultra nitpicky to the point where where it's it's irrational but nevertheless that's what they required so so bear that in mind if you're asked about the skin make sure you say it's an intact skin okay um and and look i i can't explain why they want that but just say it anyway anyway other examples of the first line of defense are the mucous membranes so so um there's no skin lining your airways for example or your esophagus um there, there's living tissue there, and that, that living tissue we call mucous membranes. And just like the skin, it prevents invasion of bacteria and, and fungi and, and so on, um, because it secretes this mucus, which is a, a clear, tasteless, odorless, but slightly viscous, sticky material that sort of lines... For example, your trachea. Um, so if you breathe bacteria in, those bacteria will get stuck in the mucus. And then because these mucous membranes are also ciliated, they have little cilia, little um, sort of finger-like things sticking out of them. Um, those little finger-like things will waft that mucus containing the bacteria back up towards your throat where you'll swallow it. Okay? And again, it prevents those from getting into your body. Um, secretions from your skin, um, like I've just talked about, the mucus, but also um, there is there are enzymes. There's one an enzyme called lysozyme that we find in in saliva and in the tears that your eyes produce. Um, is is a bactericidal agent. It, it breaks down the cell walls of bacteria. So so they are a part of the first line of defense. They stop bacteria um, getting into your body through your eyes. Um, some responses such as sneezing and coughing um, can be considered part of the first line of defense um, because they expel bacteria and fungi and other you know parasites before they have a chance to invade the body um, we could we could put even the the natural flora of bacteria that live in our gut the bacteria that live in our gut which which are, are good and and healthy and help to fight off bacteria that are pathogenic um, we could call that part of the first line of defense um, and there's lots of others too the stomach in there's acid in your stomach and all the food that you eat passes through this acid bath in your stomach now the, of course don't forget that the the main reason why the acid is in your stomach is because um, the enzyme, the protease enzyme pepsin that works in your stomach has a very, very low optimum pH. It, it only works really in a fairly acid environment. So the main reason for having a stomach is because it provides the low optimum pH that, that pepsin requires to digest protein. But a very, very fantastic side effect of having this, this acid bath that all your food passes through is that that acid is going to destroy um, a lot of bacteria and fungal spores and things that happen to be mixed up there in your food. Okay, so that's the first line of defense. Anything that prevents pathogenic organisms or viruses from entering your body in the first place, we put into that first line of defense, the barriers against infection. Okay, that brings us on to the second line of defense. Now, what we refer to as the second line of defense or innate responses are all of the 
um, they're cell mediated. Um, that means that they're done by cells. Okay, so we're not talking about barriers anymore. We're talking about you know some virus or some bacteria has got past the first line of defense. They've got into your body. Um, they're in you now. These second line of defense uh, mechanisms are cell mediated. So there are cells in there that are going to hopefully take care of those bacteria and stop them from making you sick. Um, stop them before they can make you sick. Okay, so they're cell mediated but non-specific. Cell mediated but non-specific. They're still one size fits all. Whether that thing that got into you is a fungal spore or a bacteria or a virus or you know whatever species of bacteria, the response will be the same. And the first that I want to talk about, the first example of the second line of defense, these non-specific innate responses, are phagocytes. Now, phago, P-H-A-G-O, is the Greek word for eat. So literally, phagocyte means a cell that eats, which is a pretty appropriate term for it because that's literally what they do. Um, these phagocytes will, will find um, something that's foreign in the body, perhaps a bacteria, and they will sort of surround it and engulf it by endocytosis um, or phagocytosis if we want to be, um, you know, precise about it um, because they're engulfing a solid object. So um, that's what phagocytes do is they engulf and destroy foreign things. Um, now the most common kind of phagocytes are neutrophils. Um, so you, you should know about that, um, that neutrophils are the most common and probably the most important of the phagocytes, at least as far as just sheer amounts of stuff that gets um, engulfed. Um, basophils, eosinophils are other kinds of phagocytes that are you know, less important to know about. But the other kind of phagocytes that you should know about are macrophages and dendritic cells. Now, these macrophages and dendritic cells are very closely related to each other because they both differentiate from a cell called a monocyte. So remember we have these myeloid stem cells that I talked about before. Remember that the pluripotent stem cells differentiate to become myeloid stem cells or lymphoid stem cells. The myeloid stem cells then differentiate to become all these different kinds of, of cells like neutrophils and basophils and eosinophils. They also differentiate to become monocytes and monocytes then can differentiate to become macrophages or dendritic cells. And um, and they're quite big, but you know, in comparison to a neutrophil, macrophages and dendritic cells are very big. Most of the time, these monocytes um, are very inactive. Um, they just they just sit there doing very very little. But when they find some, when they're activated, when they find something foreign and they become active, they then um, differentiate to become a macrophage or a dendritic cell, and they become very, very active. Um, the biggest difference, I mean, macrophages and dendritic cells are actually very similar to each other. If I was to show you one, you'd probably even have trouble saying which one it was. The biggest difference between them is that um, macrophages tend to be in the bloodstream. You know, dendritic cells tend to move outside the body um, and, and along the mucous membranes on the outside. So if, if you think of, say, in your trachea, they'll actually come out and crawl along the surface of those mucous membranes. That's dendritic cells. Macrophages tend to stay in the bloodstream. They'll move, both of them, in fact, can move into the tissue fluid, out of the cells, um, move around between cells in the tissue fluid. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a really, the, the differences are fairly subtle. 
The other importance of macrophages and dendritic cells, which I'll I'll just mention now and we'll talk about a bit more later, is that they are special because they're what we call antigen-presenting cells. That is, that once they've engulfed something... <laughs> that's my dog. Can you hear that? That's my dog squeaking this squeaky toy. Anyway, just ignore that. Um, once a macrophage or a dendritic cell has engulfed some foreign thing like a bacteria, it removes the antigens, the markers off the surface of that bacteria, and puts them on its own surface and displays them. And that is why they become so important in the third line of defense, in the specific immune response, which we'll get to shortly. But that brings me to a point, and that is that if, if these cells, if, if um, the phagocytes are are able to recognize foreign things, how do they do that? How do they recognize self and non-self? Um, well, this is a, a really good example of molecular specificity. And you know if you're in my class how much I like that word. So on your cells, on all of your body cells, there are these markers. They're glycoproteins, a protein with a carbohydrate chain on top. There are these markers that we call MH. C. That stands for major histocompatibility complex. Okay, so these MHC markers are on the surface of, of all of your cells except your red blood cells. Okay, that's the one little exception. But all your body cells have these MHC markers on them. There's two kinds of MHC markers. There's MHC1 markers and there's MHC2 markers. Now, every cell in your body has MHC, except red blood cells, have MHC1 markers. Every kind of cell in your body has MHC1 markers, but some cells, the B cells, B lymphocytes, and these antigen-presenting cells, macrophages and dendritic cells, also have MHC2 markers. Okay, So all the cells in your body have MHC1 markers, but macrophages, dendritic cells, and B cells have MHC2 markers. And what happens is these um, these phagocytes have receptors on their surface which are able to identify your cell as self. Okay, So um, if a cell doesn't have those self antigens, that will make that macrophage or that dendritic cell become very, very um, metabolically active. It's going to engulf um, and destroy that bacteria. Okay, another example of the second line of defense, these non-specific innate responses is interferon. Now, interferon is um, is a kind of chemical. It's really a signaling molecule. Okay, It's really um, not unlike a hormone in many, many ways. But when a cell has been infected by a virus, it releases these interferons. And interferons do a number of things. They make the cells around them um, less susceptible to being infected by the virus. That's one thing that they do. Um, but they also um, stimulate macrophages to become active, and they also stimulate another kind of cell involved in the second line of defense that we call natural killer cells. They stimulate those also to become active. Okay, so we'll come back to them in a second. So these interferons, think of them as sort of like the immune system's own hormone. Okay, it's like a hormone, but it but it only works um, to stimulate immune cells. And in fact, cell, those signal, signaling molecules, so, so we have the, the endocrine system, you know about that. We, you know about neurohormones, which is paracrine signaling. Interferons are a group 
of signaling molecules that we call collectively cytokines. And they're like the immune system's own hormones. Interferon is one of them. Another one that we'll talk about later in this episode are the interleukins. Okay, so interleukins are also cytokines. Okay, so, so there's a really important word. Well, it's not really important, but it's good to know these term, this term cytokines. A cytokine is a, a signaling molecule that that is really just limited to the communication between immune cells. Now, interferon, as I said before, not only stimulates macrophages and makes the cells around it um, less liable to be attacked by a virus that that cell, the cell that's releasing the interferons, has been infected by, but the cytokines also stimulate a cell called a natural killer cell. Now, natural killer cells are large granular lymphocytes. Remember, those pluripotent stem cells differentiate to become either lymphoid stem cells or myeloid stem cells. Um, And the lymphoid stem cells will then either differentiate to become B lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, or natural killer cells. Okay, these large granular lymphocytes. Now, what what natural killer cells do um, is, is quite different. They're still involved in the second line of, de- of defense. They're still doing non-specific things. But what they do is they don't engulf bacteria that they find. They don't engulf things that are foreign. What they do is they find your cells that have been infected by a virus or have become cancerous. In other words, they find some of your cells that have foreign antigens on their surface or changed antigens on their surface and then they kill your cell. They kill your cell. That's obviously going to be a good thing because, because if it's a cell that's become cancerous, um, killing it is good. It's going to stop the cancer from reproducing and, and growing. Um, you, by, by your age, okay, I'm guessing that you're probably 17 or 18 if you're listening to this podcast. By your age, you will have had cells become cancerous many, many times by now. But every time that that's happened... A natural killer cell has found that cell, noticed that the MHC markers on its surface have changed, and has killed that cell and prevented it from becoming a tumor. Okay. Now, the way a natural killer cell does this, and, and same goes, I might say, for, for viruses. If a cell becomes infected by a virus, the virus will leave some of its own antigens on the surface of your cell. And a natural killer cell that finds that cell, that that it's your cell, but it's got viral antigens on the surface. A natural killer cell will kill that cell. And it does that by secreting two enzymes. I don't think it really matters that you know their names, but just in case you care, their names are perforin and granzyme. And perforin punches holes in the surface of the cell. Granzyme goes in and instructs the cell to kill itself in the process that we call apoptosis. Now, the last example of in fact, the second last example of the um, second line of defense that I want to talk about is complement proteins. Um, so there's a, a, this term complement. It has There has been opportunity to use this on the exam, um, so it's not completely irrelevant. But you're not likely to be asked a big question about complement because it's so complex. Okay, um, But complement proteins is a whole bunch of different kinds of proteins that are very effective against bacteria and fungi in particular. And there's there's more than 20 different kinds of these complement proteins. Um, Most of them are secreted by macrophages um, and and other cells. The liver um, secretes quite a few different kinds of complement proteins as well. And they do a whole lot of different things. Some of them will bind onto bacteria um, and, and sort of mark them for destruction by phagocytes. Some of them will attract phagocytes. Some cause 
the, the surface of a bacteria to split open, to rupture. So they do a whole lot of different things. Um, and I think it's just good for you to recognize that such a thing exists as, as complement proteins. It's not one protein. It's a whole group of, of different kinds of proteins that do a whole lot of different things in the immune system. Um, and they're part of the second line of defense. That is, they're non-specific. And that brings me to the very last and, and the part of the, sec, of, of the second line of defense, the part of the, the non-specific immune response that I find the most exciting is mast cells. Now, this is mast, M-A-S-T, like the mast of a ship, not mask like something you'd put on your face. Apparently in 2007, there was, there was a big question in 2007 about mast cells. And apparently, according to the examiner's report, um, thousands of students called them mask cells like the mask you put on a face, and they were marked wrong because they'd spelled it incorrectly. Students often say, does it matter if I spell biological words right? Well, the official advice is if you spell a word wrongly, and in doing so, you make it a little bit unclear whether you know what the word is, um, then you will be marked wrong. Okay, um, so I can say that with a fair degree of certainty. If you spell a word wrongly, like in this case, you spell it mask cell. Now, I don't know what that would be confused with. I don't know what other kind of cell might you might think a student might be talking about. But in this case, they were marked wrong for saying mask cell. So I think the advice you want to take away from that is that, yes, it is important. It is important to be able to spell biological words correctly. So if you're really bad at spelling, um, it would be a good idea as you start gearing up for the exam to build a little bit of spelling practice into that, just like you did when you were in primary school. Get mum and dad to, um, to quiz you. Make sure that you can spell words correctly. Anyway, mast cells, I got, I got a little bit off track there. Mast cells um, are cool. What they are is they're a leukocyte, they're a white blood cell. But unlike most white blood cells that circulate around the body, you know, in the bloodstream and in the lymph, um, mast cells are embedded in connective tissue um, surrounding blood vessels, surrounding the digestive system, surrounding the respiratory system. Okay, so if you take, say, the trachea when you breathe stuff in, surrounding the trachea, there are connective tissues, and mast cells will be embedded in that. There's also mast cells embedded in, you know, in the in the tissue surrounding blood vessels and surrounding skin as well, for that matter, because skin is a connective tissue. Okay, so you, so while they are leukocytes, while they are white blood cells, they don't really they're formed in in bone marrow like all other white blood cells, but then they move through the circulatory system and find their way into these connective tissues and embed themselves there. Okay, does that make sense? And what they do, what these mast cells do, is that when tissues are damaged, when the tissues around a mast cell is damaged, the mast cells respond by releasing a chemical called histamine. Histamine, and histamine um, does a number of things. Okay. It does a number of things. This is what they do. This is what histamines do. So the mast cell, the tissues around the mast cell or the mast cell itself have, have been damaged. It releases histamines and the histamines cause blood vessels in the area to dilate, to open up and let more blood into the area. Okay. They cause the blood vessels to become more leaky, more permeable to plasma so that the water in the blood, the watery part of the blood can leak out of the blood vessels into the surrounding tissues. So the tissue fluid, you get more and more tissue fluid as, as the, the, the plasma part of blood, the watery part of blood leaks out into the tissue fluid. They attract phagocytes. Okay, um, so, so macrophages, dendritic cells, neutrophils will be attracted 
to the source of these histamines and they cause your bronchioles, the little airways that lead to your lungs, they cause those to constrict. Okay. Now, so you need to know those four things that histamines do. They cause the dilation of blood vessels. They make the blood vessels leaky, so the plasma leaks out into the tissue fluid. They attract phagocytes and they cause bronchioles leading to the lungs to constrict. Okay, now, why would that be good? Why would it be good? Let's just say you've got a splinter in your finger and there's bacteria there in amongst your tissues. Okay, A mast cell detects that because there's been tissues damaged and starts to release histamines. And that makes the blood vessels leading to that area dilate. That's good because it means more blood is coming to the area and in the blood will be neutrophils and phagocytes and you know other phagocytes and um, natural killer cells are all going to come to that area because there's more blood coming to the area. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because the blood becomes leaky and plasma is leaking out into the surrounding tissues, of course, phagocytes are going to also move out into the surrounding tissues in bigger numbers and be able to engulf and destroy any bacteria um, or, or other pathogens that have got into the tissues there. Um, by attracting phagocytes, it means that more phagocytes are going to come to that area in the first place. Um, so, so you see how, how that's going to help to, to clear up that infection. Let me give you a couple of examples, though, that you'd be familiar with. Let's just say you get a little infection in your skin. Okay, um, what happens to the skin? Well, it becomes a pimple. And think about what a pimple's like, right? It becomes red and swollen, and then eventually you get pus in it, right? <laughs> Sorry to talk about this, I know it's gross, but so your skin becomes red and swollen and pussy. What's happening? Well, it's becoming red because there's more blood coming into the area. The blood vessels have dilated, and the, there's more blood coming into that area, so it becomes red. Why does it become swollen? Well, because the plasma is leaking out of the blood vessels and filling up the spaces between the cells, the tissue fluid, and, and so it's putting pressure on that, and, and the whole area is going to swell up as, as the fluid um, sits there amongst the cells. Do you kind of get it? So that's why it's red. That's why it's swollen. And then the pus. What's the pus about? Well, you've got all these phagocytes that have been attracted to the area. And they've come out and they've started engulfing the bacteria there that are causing the infection. And phagocytes will engulf and engulf and engulf and engulf. Like goldfish, they'll keep on eating until... It's not really eating. They'll keep on doing endocytosis until they die. Okay? They'll kill themselves eating. And, and so... The pus is a mixture of dead bacteria and dead phagocytes. And the reason it's white, of course, is because, well, these are leukocytes. They're white cells. Don't you think that's cool? So the next time you squeeze a pimple and you see that white pus squirt out and hit the mirror, um, it's phagocytes. It's phagocytes. Don't you think it's cool? It's, it's kind of, I bet you can't wait till you get your next pimple just so that you can experience it from a different perspective. <laughs> Take another example. What about the common cold? You get a cold and you find it hard to breathe, don't you? So you're trying to talk, but it's hard to talk because your nose is blocked up, right? And most people think that that's because there's snot in there. But it's not snot. <laughs> snot, snot. <laughs> it's not snot. What it is, is that, is that the virus that causes the common cold, an adenovirus, has infected the lining of your nose. And the lining of your nose, of course, more... Uh, mast cells there have, have released histamine. The histamine has caused the blood vessels leading into the area um, to dilate, let more blood into the area. They've become leaky, so the blood starts leaking out of the blood vessels, filling up the tissue fluid. So the whole membrane inside your nose starts to swell up. And when it swells up, it blocks off the airways and you have trouble breathing. Um, don't you think that's so cool? And, and 
Of course, what do you do? You're feeling miserable because you can't breathe properly, so you go down to the chemist, and what does the chemist give you for it? An antihistamine. Don't you think that's great? They give you an antihistamine. And, and the antihistamine, of course, has the opposite effect of a histamine. It causes the blood vessels to constrict. It causes them to become less permeable to fluid, so that, so that less fluid plasma is leaking out into the tissue fluids. Um, so I think it's just really great. Don't you think that's great? It, you know, you're going to be looking forward again to the next time you have a cold just so that you can understand what's happening up there in your nose. Um, we could also talk about um, blisters. Um, no, we wouldn't. We'd talk about sunburn. <laughs> Let's talk about sunburn for a minute. What is it that makes your skin go pink when you get sunburned? Well, it's not. You haven't been toasted. It's not. <laughs> it's not like when you cook something on a fire. What's happening when you get sunburned is that the ultraviolet rays are damaging tissues in your cells, and the mast cells start to. They, they sense the damage, they start to release histamine. And the histamine has exactly the same effect on that skin as it does in your nose. And so it causes the blood vessels to dilate, letting more blood come flowing into the area. That's why it becomes pink. That's why your skin becomes pink, is there's more blood coming into the skin because of the histamines. And it becomes swollen. Have you ever, ever noticed how tight your skin feels if you've got sunburn? Well, that's because... As the blood comes in, the blood vessels also become leaky and the plasma leaks out and and fills up the tissue fluid. So your skin gets really tight. And, and all of that pressure puts, it puts pressure on the nerve endings in your skin. And we experience that as a sort of a stinging sensation. Okay, So it's not really burnt as such. It's, it's damaged by ultraviolet light. Um, but again, again, you know, not that you ever want to go and get sunburnt, but... Um, but I think it's kind of cool to understand what's really happening there. And it's all down to mast cells and histamines. And in the next episode of the podcast, we'll talk about allergies as well, because an allergy um, is caused by an inappropriate response by mast cells. So just bear that in mind. Anyway, let's move on, because it's time now for us to talk about the specific immune response. Some people call this the adaptive immune response or acquired immunity, or the third line of defense. Okay, so what we're going to look at now for the, really for the rest of this episode, is the ways that your immune system can make a, a specific tailor-made attack on a pathogen that has got past the first line of defense and got into your body. And the second line of defense, you know, the, the, so you imagine a bacteria gets into your body, it's got past the first line of defense, because it's in your body, right? And, and then, it starts to reproduce, of course, because it's nice and warm and moist and nutritious in there. So bacteria will start to reproduce madly once they get in there. Meanwhile, the phagocytes are coming and starting to engulf the bacteria. Maybe mast cells have been activated and they start to release histamines. And so the area is becoming red and swollen, but still the bacteria are reproducing. And if that gets out of hand, if the, if the second line of defense can't get control of this, this situation and the bacteria numbers continue to increase, even though the second line of defense has been working on it, Clearly, things have got out of hand. Now we need the third line of defense, a specific tailor-made attack on that particular species of bacteria or that particular kind of virus. Um, and this is going to be a very, very effective attack. Okay. Now, when people talk about the immune response. When people talk about, they just say the immune response. How does the immune system respond? Um, what they're talking about is this third line of defense. 
Okay, so while all of this is is part of the immune system, it's all about defenses against disease. When people just say the immune response, they're really talking about the specific immune response. Or another word that people often use, um, rather than calling it the specific immune response or the third line of defense, is to refer to it as the adaptive immune response. So if you hear the term adaptive immune response, they're talking about the specific immune response or this third line of defense. Remember before when we were talking about the second line of defense, uh, I mentioned there that an equivalent term to that is the innate immune response. Well, the same thing here. This is actually a pretty good term. The term adaptive immune response is actually a pretty good term because the cells, as you'll see, that are involved in this specific or adaptive immune response adapt in their behavior. They change their behavior in response to particular antigens that are in your body. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all response. It's a, a unique, tailor-made response to specific antigens, and hence the term adaptive immune response. I don't think it really matters which term you use. If you want to call it the specific immune response, that's a perfectly acceptable term, or adaptive immune response is gaining popularity. Um, either way, um, we're talking about exactly the same thing. And there's really two parts of the specific immune response, and they involve T cells and B cells, or T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. Like all leukocytes, um, all white blood cells, T cells and B cells start their life in the bone marrow, and they're derived from pluripotent stem cells. Um, and remember that some of those pluripotent stem cells differentiate to become lymphoid stem cells. And once they do that, there's no going back. They can't go back and become you know, some other kind of cell. They, they're bound now to be a lymphocyte but they can still differentiate to become either a B cell or a T cell, or I guess a, a large granular lymphocyte, like a natural killer cell. The ones that differentiate to become a T cell leave the bone marrow and move to the thymus gland, which is sort of in your neck there, and, and they continue to develop there in your thymus gland. That's actually why they're called T cells. The T stands for thymus. Okay, But the lymphoid cells that differentiate, differentiate to become B cells or B lymphocytes, they stay in the bone marrow and they differentiate to become B, B cells. They, they mature there in the bone marrow. Now, you might, think, you might think that that's why they're called B cells, right? B for bone. And it's probably not unhelpful to think of it that way. But in fact, the B stands for bursa of fabricus because there's, there's this organ in birds called the bursa of fabricus and probably discovered by someone called Fabricus, I'm guessing. But anyway, B cells were first identified in the bursa of Fabricus of some chicken, and so, and so they were called B cells. But they do mature in the bone marrow. Okay, let's talk about B cells first and the action of B cells, which we call the humoral immune response, the humoral immune response. Now, humor, in this sense, doesn't mean funny. It's not referring to my brilliant jokes that I put in these podcasts week by week. Humoral is referring to, um, to fluid, okay? So when we call it the humoral immune response, we're talking about a sort of a blood-borne response, okay? Um, now, each B cell, each B cell has a protein on its surface that we call an immunoglobulin or an antibody. I'll bet you've heard that term before, right? An antibody. So, so each of your B cells has an immunoglobulin called an antibody 
on the surface. Now, these these antibodies are sort of a Y-shaped structure. It's kind of hard to describe um, in words, but if you imagine an antibody being like the shape of a capital Y, and the two tips of the Y have a sort of a spanner-like end um, on it, which we call the antigen binding site. Now, the antigen binding site, in a lot of ways, is a bit like an enzyme. Okay, it, it has just like the the an enzyme has an active site that fits the substrate exactly. The antigen binding site on on the tips of that Y-shaped antibody will fit the antigen of a bacteria or a virus specifically. Just just so in a lot of ways, this again this is an excellent example of molecular specificity. Now, if you look at two B cells side by side, you know, they look much the same, but at a molecular level, their antibodies are a different shape. Most of it's the same shape, most of it's the same shape, but if you just look at the antigen binding site, the tips of it, you'll see that they're different. Each B cell has a different shaped antigen binding site. How does that happen? Hmm. Well, this is one of the most remarkable things, I think, in all of biology. This is one of the most sensational things that happens, I think, in, in all of our study of Unit 3 biology. And it was discovered by an Australian biologist called Sir Frank McFarlane Burnett. And uh, it's called the clonal selection theory. So what happens is this. Okay, When B cells are being formed, and this goes for T cells too, by the way, but if this is happening for them in the thymus gland, but we're here in the bone marrow looking at B cells. When B cells are being formed, um, the DNA that encodes that variable region on the end of the antibodies, okay, the, the part that the little spanner head end, the, the DNA that encodes that gets randomly rearranged. It gets cut and shuffled so that the shape of the protein, the shape of the antibody, um, changes every time a B cell is made. And so so you imagine this this um, lymphoid stem cell dividing to make B cells, and every time it happens, the DNA gets cut and shuffled so that the the ends of the antibody is different in every case. So there's like this infinite variety of different kinds of antibodies. Each B cell has only one, but there's this infinite... So it's, it's, that is actually a very important point. I'm going to say that again because it's been questioned on a number of exams um, even last year's exam and the one before too, each B cell has only one kind of antibody. Okay, The antibodies on a given B cell are all the same. They all have exactly the same antigen binding site. But the next B cell is going to have different antibodies to the first one. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Okay, so we've got you know, this cell, this um, lymphoid stem cell is dividing and making B cell after B cell after B cell. And each B cell has a unique antigen binding site on the end of its, um, its antibodies. Um, so there's, there's just, there's no end to the number of different possible shapes that, that can be there. And that means, of course, that it doesn't matter what kind of pathogen gets into your body, what kind of bacteria, what kind of virus with its with its own antigens on the surface, there's bound somewhere in your body, there's bound to be a B cell with an antibody that matches that antigen. Okay, now, when a bacteria enters the body, so it comes in and starts reproducing, it might not, let's just say there's one B cell that matches, a particular bacteria comes into the body, there's one B cell somewhere in the body that matches that one species of, of bacteria's antigen. Now, it's unlikely, isn't it, that that bacteria is going to meet that B cell straight away. It could happen, but it's very unlikely. But 
after the bacteria has been reproducing and reproducing and reproducing for a while, if the numbers of bacteria start to rise, because the problem's out of hand, the, the second line of defense couldn't cope with it, odds are one of those bacteria is going to find that B cell no matter where it happens to be in the body. Okay, And when that happens, when, when that, that bacteria bumps into a B cell with a matching antibody, um, it will stick onto it because of molecular specificity, because there's this, this affinity, this attraction between those complementary shapes. And when that happens, um, that B cell starts to clone itself. It starts to make copies of itself. It starts to divide, um, making thousands of copies of itself. And each one of those B cells has exactly the same antibody as that parent B cell that found a bacteria with a foreign antigen on the surface. Okay. Now, when the B cell clones itself to make all these clones, there's two different kinds of clones. Some of them are called plasma cells, and some of them are called B memory cells. Okay, so so um, just to recap quickly, thousands of different kinds of B cells in your body, all different, all with a different antibody, um, different antigen binding site on their antibody. When a bacteria gets in, eventually, odds are it's going to find a B cell with a matching antibody. And when it does, that B cell is going to become very active, start reproducing, making clones of itself, some of those clones will be called plasma cells. Some of them will, call, will be called B memory cells. But all of them will have the exact same antibody as the B cell that they were cloned from. Now, let's talk about the, the plasma cells first. Um, these plasma cells are just extraordinary. Um, what they do is, unlike their parent B cell, they don't just have the antibodies stuck on their outer surface. What they do is they start making and releasing antibodies into the blood at a frightening rate. At about a, It's at a rate of about 30,000 antibodies per second. Okay, So you've, you imagine you've got this B cell. It starts making hundreds, thousands of plasma cells. And each of the plasma cells is making 30,000 antibodies per second. Now, if you compare that to a machine gun, a machine gun fires about 20 rounds, 20 bullets um, a second. So if you want to try and sort of imagine what this would be like, it would be like having 1,500 machine guns shooting antibodies out of the cell. rate that these plasma cells are, are shooting antibodies. Um, I mean, what an extraordinary thought, isn't it? And when you consider that, that there's lots of plasma cells that have cloned from this B cell, it doesn't take long to realize that it's, you know, in only a very short period of time, your blood is going to be flowing with antibodies. And each of those antibodies is specific to that bacteria that's got past the first and second lines of defense. Now, unlike the plasma cells, the memory cells, um, they can last for maybe 10 years or so, and, and they give a person immunity so that, um, so that if that antigen, if that bacteria, for example, ever gets back into your body again another time, it's not going to be very long before it finds a B memory cell that has a matching, you know, the first time it took ages to find that B cell. So in the meanwhile, you got sick, right? Whereas the bacterial problem increased or the viral problem increased. Um, but the second time, it's going to run into a B memory cell so so soon that the problem will be over before it even begins. Um, 
And so the response that will happen will not only be faster, but it will be bigger. The second time you're going to make even more antibodies because each of those B memory cells is going to clone itself and make plasma cells and even more memory cells. So you're going to have even greater immunity the third time. Okay, now that's why this um, is called the clonal this what we've just been discussing is called clonal selection or the clonal selection theory um, because there's an infinite number of different B cells formed with respect to the shape of the antigen binding site on their surface. Um, and what that does, you know, the reason for it, of course, is that your immune system has no idea what pathogens might actually exist. Um, but when, when a pathogen gets into your body, obviously it exists, um, now your immune system puts all these resources into building an immunity against that one pathogen. Now, I might just mention at this point um, that there are five different classes of antibodies, um, which are called G, M, A, D, and E, or immunoglo immunoglobulin G, immunoglobulin M, immunoglobulin A, immunoglobulin D, and immuno immunoglobulin E. Most people just refer to them as, say, class G antibodies or class M antibodies or whatever. And I just want to make the point that what's supposed to happen is you make lots and lots of class G antibodies. Um, they're the ones that we normally think of. Um, and they can cross the placenta. They can get into milk. So they're, they're really great. We'll talk more about this in the next episode. Um, class M antibodies are the first antibodies that are produced. Um, but class E antibodies... Um, what they do, they're a bit special because what they do is you're not supposed to have very many of these made. In fact, if you have lots of them made, that's what causes an allergy. Okay, But you're supposed to have a few of these class E antibodies produced. And what they will do is they'll go and they'll stick on mast cells, just like we talked about before. And they'll make the mast cells much, much more sensitive to that particular um, kind of antigen, that bacteria or that virus. And and if you get enough of these class E antibodies stuck on the surface of, of that mast cell, when a bacteria contacts two of those class E antibodies at the same time, that will stimulate the mast cell to release its histamine. Okay, So it, it, obviously if you have too many class E antibodies stuck on your mast cells, you become hypersensitive um, and, and that's what an allergy is. You know, if you have mast cells, for example, and, and perhaps you've mistakenly produced heaps and heaps of class E antibodies against grass pollen, um, then you breathe in a bit of grass pollen. Every time it touches a mast cell, it's going to form these crosslinks between these class E antibodies on the surface of the mast cell. The mast cell releases histamines and, and you know, your nose swells up and all of that sort of thing. Um, you have an immune, sorry, you have an, an allergic response. Okay, let's move on, and uh, we've almost finished, but let's just talk briefly about T cells. Um, a T cell is very similar to a B cell in a lot of ways, so I don't need to explain it in quite so much detail. Um, T cells also have immunoglobulins on their surface, but we don't call them antibodies, we call them T cell receptors. They're very much like an antibody, but instead of being Y-shaped, they're more just a stick with an antigen binding site on the end of it. Now, there's two kinds of T-cells. There's cytotoxic T-cells and there's helper T-cells. So let's talk first about the cytotoxic T-cells. Um, just like B-cells, cytotoxic T-cells are produced also with an infinite variety of different antigen binding sites on their T-cell receptors. But um, cytotoxic T-cells have another receptor on their surface. Um, the name I don't think is important, but it's called a CD8 protein. And what that does is it lets it identify MHC1 markers. Um, now, 
remember, all of the cells in your body have MHC1 markers. So what that means is cytotoxic T cells are able to identify your own cells, okay? Because your cells have those MHC1 markers. Um, so what happens is cytotoxic T cells go around the body looking for your cells. But as well as being able to identify your cells because it has MHC1 markers that fit their CD8 receptor, they also have a T cell receptor, a bit like an antibody, that's unique to that one T cell, okay, like antibodies are to B cells. So um, if one of these um, cytotoxic T cells finds one of your cells, which it can identify, and it finds that your cell has a foreign antigen on the surface that fits into its T cell receptor, then just like a B cell, it will start to clone itself and make thousands and thousands of, of daughter cells that each have the same T cell receptor. And it'll also make T, T memory cells as well. But anyway, most of these clones become really metabolically active and they start traveling around the body frantically looking for your cells that have that same foreign antigen on their surface. And when they find them, just like natural killer cells, they're going to secrete those same two proteins, perforin and granzyme, that will punch holes in your cell and cause your cell to kill itself by apoptosis. This time, of course, um, because it's been infected by that specific virus, that virus that's specific to this particular T cell's T cell receptor. Now, I mentioned before that what B cells do by releasing antibodies um, is called the humoral immune response. What, what cytotoxic T cells do is called the cell-mediated immune response. What we've just been describing is the cell-mediated immune response. Now, I've been talking about B cells and T cells, but I've left out one important piece of information, and that's the role of helper T cells, which is another kind of T cell. So when, for example, a B cell finds a foreign antigen that fits its antibody, I said that the B cell would proliferate and you know clone itself and make lots and lots of plasma cells and memory cells and all that, didn't I? Um, but that will only happen if it get, gets help from a helper T cell. And what happens is it needs a helper T cell who's also found that very same antigen that fits its T cell receptor, and it then secretes a kind of cytokine. Remember, that's the, like the signaling molecules that, um, that leukocytes use to communicate with each other. It secretes a, a kind of cytokine called an interleukin. And that interleukin is what stimulates that B cell to become active and start to clone itself and make plasma cells and memory cells. So if a B cell just finds a bacteria, okay, if a B cell just bumps into a bacteria that matches its antibody, it will sit there and do nothing until it also finds a helper T cell that also matches that, that, um, that foreign antigen as well. Okay. A similar story is true for cytotoxic T cells as well. It also needs an interleukin. It's actually a different interleukin, but it also needs an interleukin from helper T cells. So if, if a cytotoxic T cell, just like a B cell, if a cytotoxic T cell finds one of your cells which has been infected by a virus, because it's got, it's got this viral antigen on the surface of a cell that has MHC1 markers, it won't kill the cell directly immediately. It, it has to wait until a helper T cell, which is also found that foreign antigen um, gives it the help to do so. And so that's why these things are called helper T cells. Now, do you remember earlier in the podcast um, that I said that macrophages and dendritic cells, out of all the second line of defense and out of all the phagocytes, macrophages and dendritic cells were special because not only were they phagocytes, not only do they engulf foreign things that they find, but they also 
are antigen-presenting cells. That is, when they engulf a bacteria or they engulf a virus, they put the antigens from that pathogen on their own surface. Now, remember that also, um, and, and and if if you're struggling with all of these words, look, don't panic. I know it's a long episode and there's a lot of words in there, but you don't have to do it all at once. Okay, so here we have this this macrophage. It's got the antigens that it's you know, from the bacteria that it's engulfed on its own surface. But remember, it also has MHC2 markers. Now, in order for a helper T cell to start producing the kinds of, of, of interleukins, those cytokines that it needs to stimulate the B cells and the cytotoxic T cells, it needs to find a cell which has the foreign antigen and also MHC2 markers. And those antigen-presenting cells are really, really good for that. And so even though they are involved in the second line of defense because they engulf foreign things and that's non-specific. They're also really, really important because they help the helper T cells to become active. And once the helper T cells become active, they stimulate the B cells and cytotoxic T cells to become active. Now, before we round out this episode, I want to just answer a few listener emails that have come in since the last episode. Uh, and the first of those is from listener Ian, if I can find it here. Here it is. Listener Ian sent an email asking about macrophages. And, and this is what he said. He said, I'm just wondering, with macrophages, when they show the class 2 MHC markers, do they all, all go to the lymph nodes so memory cells, T and B cells are produced? Um, what if the pathogen is already destroyed by the macrophages? Then what's the point? Do only some macrophages go to the lymph node after a certain amount of time or resistance? So, so what he's saying is that, you know, if, let's just imagine that uh, you visit somebody who's got chickenpox and a chickenpox virus gets into your body and is engulfed by a macrophage, it seems like a, a waste of energy for that macrophage to then go to all the trouble of, of going to the lymph nodes and presenting that chickenpox antigen to, to help a T cells and, and B cells and so on, you know, if the virus has already been destroyed, if that was the only one that was in there. Well, here's the thing. That macrophage engulfs the virus and displays its the, the, the chickenpox virus on the surface on those MHC2 markers, it does go to the lymph nodes, presents them to a B cell, and if, if there's a B cell there with a matching antibody, then then it will it will respond to, I mean, it'll sit there, it'll attach to it, but it won't proliferate, it won't make copies of itself, which is the part that requires all the energy, unless a helper T cell comes along, which also has been activated by coming into, into contact um, with some of that foreign antigen as well. So in other words, there would have to have been, a, there'd have to be at least two foreign antigens to have got into the body for that to have happened. So in a sense, that that's one way in which the body doesn't waste energy if, if the very first virus that gets into the body is engulfed and destroyed. But I suppose in a way, if a virus gets into your body, it's it's better to waste some energy and have an immune response than to get sick. So, um, but yeah, generally speaking, I, mean, I don't know whether all macrophages are going to head to the lymph nodes, but but certainly that's their tendency to do that. Now, listener Maddie also asked a question about B cells. So uh, let me play that one for you. 
Hey Dauchi, I was just wondering what happens to the B cells once they multiply? Um, or like if they die or do they remain still in the cell? Um, or if like the one B cell would migrate back to the other cells once they've been used or what would happen? All right, thank you. Hey, thanks for that, Maddie. Do you remember in earlier in the episode we were talking about when a B cell clones itself to make plasma cells and memory cells? Um, so that original B cell is is gone now. It, it'll it'll divide, and some of the cells that it divides to give rise to will be plasma cells. And those plasma cells, I mean, they're working very hard. They're, they're producing antibodies um, at at a rate of around about the equivalent of a thousand machine guns firing bullets. Um, you know, if, if you imagine the amount of work it takes to produce that volume of proteins, that cell is working flat out. And as far as cells are concerned, those plasma cells are going to wear themselves out very quickly. Um, so, you know, in a, in a matter of, of days or at least weeks, those those plasma cells will be will be worn out and they'll die. Not true for the memory cells, of course, which are the other clones of, of that original B cell. Those memory cells, they have a very low metabolism and, and they will last for years and years and years, probably 10 years. Um, and, and they'll just sit there waiting, just, just like the original B cell did. Um, they'll just hang around. It's just that the original B cell, there might have only been one or two with that particular antibody in your whole in your whole body, whereas whereas now these memory cells, there'll be lots of them. They'll be all over your body, so it gives you that lasting immunity. But the original B cell, which I think is what you were asking about, is gone now, really, because it, it divided to give rise to those other two kinds of cells. And I love the way that Maddie sent her question in uh, as in her own voice. Um, and if you want to do that, a really easy way to do that on your phone, you're going to have a voice recorder app. Uh, just record your voice message and then share it by an email to me at biologypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can also write your email at biologypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Almost forgot my own email address there for a moment. Um, like the way that listener Arush did. And Arush has asked, can I say, uh, you know, have a bit of a chat about biofuels, um, which I didn't talk about when we were speaking, you know, in the last episode about cellular respiration. Um, I didn't say anything about biofuels, even though they are part of the course and they're related to anaerobic fermentation. So let's address that now in a couple of minutes. Uh, we'll talk about what biofuels are and what you need to know about them. And I don't think you really need to know a whole lot about biofuels, uh, but what you should know is that when yeast carry out anaerobic fermentation. When yeast have access to sugar, but no access to oxygen, they'll do anaerobic respiration. And remember, they produce carbon dioxide and ethanol or alcohol. And that ethanol is a fuel or it can be used as a fuel. And so often it can be mixed with petrol. Um, and if you go to the, a petrol station and you see E10, that E10 fuel, that's how it's normally sold in Australian petrol stations, E10 fuel is petrol with 10% ethanol added to it, um, hence E10 for ethanol, 10. And another kind of biofuel is called biodiesel. Now, biodiesel is usually made from vegetable oils, um, you know, so it's, it's not uh, made by fermentation, but it generally has ethanol added to it as well. So again, it's a fuel 
Um, it's made from organic products. The vegetable oils themselves are organic products, but the ethanol that's added to those vegetable oils is also produced by anaerobic fermentation. And I think that's that's really what you want to know about. That's the relevance to the course, and it's what, what I think VCAR will want you to know, because, of course, what you're expected to understand is that anaerobic fermentation produces alcohol. Okay, and so, you know, that's the key thing, really, the anaerobic fermentation. That's the important thing for you to understand from a biological perspective. But it's the way that it's used in industry is important, too. All right. Well, that's all the biology that I've got for you today. In the next episode, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode. I hope you're sort of so excited about the immune system that you're kind of almost looking forward to getting sick um, (laughs) the next time you get a cold or something. We've still got a little bit to do on the immune system. Um, We still need to look at the applications of immunity, vaccination, for example, and those kinds of things, uh, which are obviously not only an important part of the Unit 4 biology course, but also really important things to understand because we live in a society and, you know, vaccination is is a hot topic at the moment. Um, so we'll we'll get right into that. Uh, so if you've got questions, please do send them in and, uh, and help me to make this podcast valuable for you. But I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, don't forget to study hard and remember we're at war. So keep those defenses up. <laughs>